Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. YOLO gets us to think about life in, in, the, in two very different ways. One is as very volatile and destructible and something you can lose in an instant. But the other is we can tap into the value of being alive in a lot of different ways beyond just this idea that it should be preserved. I'm Sarah Wilson, and this is Wild, a show where we talk with the biggest minds in the world about the ideas that can help us love and save our one wild and precious life together on this planet. I love it when you meet someone who has done some sort of meaning-seeking journey and it somehow from other sides of the globe sees the two of you both stop off at similar way markers and do remarkably parallel deviations on this meaning-seeking journey. So Nick Riggle dropped out of high school as a teenager to become a pro skater, but like me, after many wild and unstructured detours, eventually wound up studying philosophy in his early 20s. And funnily, we both studied philosophy at the University of California, he at Berkeley and me at Santa Cruz campus, which is about an hour or so away. Now, Nick found himself turning to contemporary cultural sticking points and using philosophical inquiry to get to the heart of these sticking points. And I guess you could say, I've done the same with my career. Plus, he quotes Mary Oliver in his book, as I do too, and he runs her poem, The Summer's Day, which contains the line, tell me what it is you plan to do with your one wild and precious life, which of course informs the title of my latest book. Oh, and I'll add to that, he's mates with the philosopher Kieran Setia, who was on this podcast a few weeks back, talking about how to love living a hard life. And it was Kieran who suggested that Nick and I meet. So here we are. Nick is now a professor at the University of San Diego, and he's written the book, Awesome, A Unified Theory of How Not to Suck. And his latest book is about to land. It's called This Beauty, A Philosophy of Being Alive, which discusses the phenomenon of YOLO, you only live once. The unifying thread to all of this, to Nick's philosophical deep dives, is one that I find enlivening. And well, it's in alignment with conclusions I reach in my books and here, you know, in conversations on wild. I won't give too much away, but it does entail cultivating a philosophy for actually being alive, choosing to be fully alive on this one wild and precious planet together. And just a quick heads up, we do, or rather I do, touch on suicidal ideation. So if that's not for you right now, perhaps save this episode for a more stable time down the track. Okay, let's meet Nick Riggle. 
All right, Nick, why don't we kick off here? Um, you have ambitiously, as per the title of one of your books, unif- got a unified philosophical theory of awesome as a moral virtue for our era. I wonder if you can tell us what is awesomeness? What is awesome? And there's a number of features that need to be in place, right, before we can cry out, that's awesome or, or you're awesome, according to your theory. Yeah, so the short version of the theory is that being awesome is being good at creating social openings. So that's a technical term, obviously. So um, the technical term means a social opening is created when there's an opportunity for two people to connect over the individuals they are. And that's like, as opposed to connecting over just the social roles that we inhabit, the professionalism that we embody, or things like that, sort of these generic personal features that a lot of us tend to embody and act from. You know, when we're in the coffee shop, you and I usually act more or less the same way. I mean, as long as we're just sort of being the standard coffee shop customer. And you can say the same thing when we're in a classroom or walking down the street. We tend not to overtly express ourselves as individuals, our senses of humor, our senses of spontaneity and playfulness, our interest in fashion and art and beauty. These things tend to get kind of suppressed in the generic culture. And so a social opening happens when someone breaks out of these generic roles and expresses their individuality but in a way that allows someone else to break out of their role and express theirs. And so awesomeness is when, you know, two individuals are kind of seeing each other for who they are as individuals and sort of vibing, you know, sort of like playing around as it were. So there's sort of two key points there. The first is awesomeness happens when you kind of break out of a rut or a norm, right? And you do something a little bit off kilter, you Mm -hmm. know? And so maybe at the coffee shop, the example would be instead of just going up, and ordering your coffee, you kind of make a joke with the barista that breaks through some kind of protocol. You know, it might be even a little bit naughty or a bit cheeky and and it gets a bit of a laugh. It might make people feel briefly awkward, but then they kind of go, that's awesome that somebody went to that place, you know? Yeah, exactly. The second point is that there's got to be a sort of a, a mutual vibe to to the gesture. So it's not like you just do it because you want to look like a legend. It's meant to also inspire others to tap into their sense of breaking out of a rut and their sense of individuality. Have I got that right? You nailed it. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. It's important that the way that you express your individuality, even if you have a kind of weird or strange personality, that it be expressed in a sort of inviting way. And that can be really hard to do. I mean, I think that that's part of what makes being awesome so amazing in some ways when people are really good at being awesome is that they can kind of read the room so well and see like, you know, what what people would be open to, what kinds of social openings people would be willing to take up. Yeah, but I think anyone can probably be awesome because I think even when we recognize that someone's busted out of their comfort zone, they've gone to the edge, but they're deeply awkward, or even if they've got a kind of awkwardly wrong, like they haven't read the room, we can also applaud that as awesome, can't we? Like, you know, I mean, TikTok and so on is full of awesomeness. And often it'll be when somebody's really made a monumental stuff up, but they've done it anyway. Yeah, totally. Yeah. 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 I opened, actually opened my book on being awesome with an example of this young guy, Jeremy Fry, who starts dancing to Bon Jovi in the middle of a basketball halftime show. And 
Yeah, and he sort of bounces out of his seat and starts mimicking Bon Jovi in a music video. And I think if you watch that, you see like exactly your point that, you know, he's sort of awkward and it's it's a little too exuberant, but people are totally willing, you know, people are down in my technical terminology. They're willing to take up this odd social opening and, and sort of applaud this guy, even though he's being very, you know, some sort of awkward and uh, mm. in his, in his It's a rejoicing so. of everything that makes us human in many ways. And that actually enhances the better things in our humanness. And I think the antonym, which you also focus on in your book is suckiness, you know, and that's a rejection of these efforts. So it's a rejection of the social openings. It might be like somebody slams or, or disses an effort by somebody to create an opening. And I think that's really worth discussing. Tell me about suckiness. Yeah, no, you got it exactly right. So you can imagine the same kind of scenario we were thinking of before where someone's offered a social opening and they don't really have any good reason to deny or decline it, but they do anyway, um, kind of gratuitously as it were. And I make a point in the book to say, you know, there's an option here where you can kind of politely decline it. You know, you can kind of say, look, I'm not interested in this kind of exchange at the moment. I, I'm going to just stick to my role as the barista or stick to my role as I'm just a fan at a basketball game or whatever it is. But some people just deny the social opening in this kind of overt and, and gratuitous way. And that's that sucks. That's suckiness. I think it's a really good definition because we all know when somebody sucks or yeah. they do something sucky, they're kind of a downer. They They don't bring light and reciprocity to the situation, you know? Yeah, I think that one of the things that this dynamic between being awesome, creating social opening, being down or game, taking it up and suckiness, you know, it brings out this fact that I emphasize in the book that, you know, feeling hopeful and spirited and connected to that kind of human joy, it's a two-sided affair, you know, it's not something that we can just, you know, find sitting waiting for us on Netflix or that is always just like delivered to our doorstep. It's something that we have to actively participate in, even as people who are receiving the social opening. The other side of a social opening is someone who's also expressing themselves. And I think that's an important part of the dynamic mm. there. It's at the heart of the human dance, isn't it, on this planet? You know, we support each other in dancing this kind of crazy waltz onwards and forwards into better places. You also talk about the high five, the etiology of the high five, and and I always assumed it was just something that has always existed, particularly in American culture, but there's actually a particular moment, and I think it really paints a great picture of awesomeness and that notion of the social opening and a sort of a mutual appreciation. Can you tell us about that history? It's really interesting. Yeah, no, I love this story. You know, I marvel at the fact that the high five, by all consensus, was invented in the mid 70s in Southern California. You think, gosh, the entire history of humanity, and, you know, we have so many forms of mutual greeting and acknowledgement and love, and the high five is so natural to us, but it's not part of our cultural knowledge that it's new. You know, it's not even 50 years old. I mean, it's kind of amazing to think about that. But it was invented by the man who's recognized as the first openly gay Major League Baseball player, Glenn Burke, who um, played for the Dodgers in the 70s. He was on deck to bat in a pretty momentous game because Dusty Baker, who just won the World Series, by the way, as the coach of the, of the Astros. Is that right? Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Thanks for that update. <laughs> yeah. Dusty Baker was up to bat and he was expected to hit his 30th home run of the season multiple other players on the team had hit 30 home runs. And it was going to be the first time that so many players on a single team had hit over 30, 30 or more home runs. So was, everyone was really anticipating this. He hadn't hit the home run 
couple games before. And so it was, you know, it was going to happen at some point. And so Dusty Baker was up to bat and Glenn Burke was, I think, a rookie at the time, was on deck. Dusty Baker goes up and cracks, cracks a home run and he comes around to home and, and he notices that Glenn Burke is standing there with his hand way up in the air and Dusty Baker. So it's extended backwards, right? Back yeah, kind of, kind of extended back. It looks like he's really going for like a very extremely exuberant high five. And Dusty Baker is, you know, famously says, you know, I, I saw him standing there with his hand up and I, I could tell he just wanted me to reach up and like slap his hand. So I, so I did it. Dusty Baker's up to bat next and he hits, his, he hits his first home run of his career right after. And he comes around home and Dusty Baker's standing there with his hand in the air. So it's a really wonderful example of this kind of like this awkward, almost social opening of like, what am I supposed to do? Like, yeah, like let's slap hands. And then, and then, you know, immediately Dusty Baker does the same in return and kind of this yeah. show of affection and love. And it's awesomeness. It's it's the kind of recognition, this is a moment of awesomeness. And I think you say in your book, it's not the mutual appreciation of achievement, but the feeling we get upon the achievement of mutual appreciation, you know, and I love that. I like that sort of turn of phrase. It, it, I think it nicely captures that, yeah, that feeling that we tend to express with the high five. One of the really nice quotes from Glenn Burke is that, He's like, you know that feeling you have when you when you high five someone? He's like, yeah, I had that before anyone else. <laughs> <laughs> Which is not really the beauty of of awesome. It doesn't really because awesome is about being there in that a mutual that mutual appreciation. Yeah, yeah totally. I think, and I think that's really the thing about the particularity. If we d- do the deep dive, and that's what you do with these words that are popular in the zeitgeist, you do that kind of Socratic deep dive in where you go, well, what do you mean by awesome? And what's the feeling? And is it mutual or is it internal? That really gets to the heart of what philosophy has always been about. You know, you drill, you drill, you drill. Exactly. Yeah. No, I, I really appreciate that that point. I mean, I self-consciously wrote this in the spirit of Socratic inquiry. When you read the old dialogues, I mean, you see that Plato, Plato's dialogues, you see that He's doing the same thing. He's like, well, what's piety? You think you know what it is, but like, what is it? You know, what's what's wisdom? What's virtue? Everyone's running around acting like they know these things, but like, let's actually think about what they are in their essence. And I think, you know, I, I tried to do the same thing with with awesome because I thought, you know, it's kind of strange that we use this word to talk about so many things that of value that we really love. And there's a way of kind of dismissing it as superficial. You know, you don't you don't mean anything by awesome other than yay, or it's good, or it's just a kind of fatty way of talking about things you like. Yeah. Awesome isn't great, is it? Like, I think you've used examples in the book where you've kind of gone, yeah, you go to a concert with so-and-so, and it's great, but it's not awesome. And then you, I think you cite examples where that's definitely awesome. And it's because they've broken the rules. They've gone the extra bit that's kind of made us go, oh my God, I didn't think we were allowed to do that, but you went there, you know, you went there and we're, you know, it's the, the person who touches the paint right next to the do not touch wet paint sign, you know, <laughs> it's like, oh, somebody yeah. did it. <laughs> Why not? Like, yeah, let's see exactly. what happens. Yeah. Look, I'm wondering, you know, as I was sort of reading your book and uh, thinking about all of this, I'm wondering if awesome is so appreciated today and it's become almost the ethical virtue that we applaud and we applaud it with with the high five, as you say, because we're in an era of really closing in and conforming and cocooning and avoiding discomfort and confrontation. We really have this urge with deep within us, you know, at our visceral core to grasp out to and to celebrate 
anyone who does go the other way. And there are examples, unfortunately, are rare, but when they happen, they're so memorable and we rejoice and, and it brings a smile, you know. Is, is that why awesome has become such, such a term, you know, such a powerful term? Yeah. So I speculate about this in the book. I think it's one of the later chapters. It's hard to have a definitive answer. You know, I think some of this depends on deep sociological questions that I don't really have the expertise to answer. But I think, as you know, in some of your work, there's a kind of epidemic of loneliness. And we've seen the trends over the last 50, 60 years increasingly. It's disturbing. And at the same time that we see these trends of increasing loneliness, we notice that the sort of culture of awesomeness is flourishing. I mean, Glenn Burke, the high five was invented in the mid 70s. I mean, this idea that as a culture, the sort of West loves the sort of celebration of individuality is somewhat new. You know, this idea that we can be gay, we can be all kinds of things that were just not allowed. I mean, in, in the 50s, even, you know, not that long ago. So I think with the emergence of individuality as something that's celebrated, you have your really weird sense of humor, you have your really idiosyncratic tastes. One person's into camp, the other's into Norwegian death metal, the other's into children's books. <laughs> you know, we, we can be kind of all over the place in our individualities. And we want to express those and make those known and explore them with each other. But at the same time, there's a danger there of kind of losing connection with other people because you know, you might be just too individual or too weird or too too odd. You know, you're alienating to other people and it's... And yeah, it's a, it drags that, it away from that social opening um, aspect of the definition of awe and awesome. Exactly. Yeah. And so I think I think of awesomeness as, as celebrated these days because it allows us to create community over our individualities. So it takes that thread away, but also allows us to find find forms of community that don't bulldoze individuality. You know, I think in the in the 50s, as it were, there's a sense that to have community, you have to be the same as everyone else. When that all got blown up, we had broadly culturally trouble replacing those maybe pernicious notions of community with ones that are more celebratory of human diversity and flourishing. And so I think awesomeness kind of strikes that balance between alienated individuality and conformist community. I think as humans, we've always tried to find that sweet spot, you know, and at times the, the pendulum swings too far to individualism, which is certainly where the pendulum is at the moment. And then it will also swing, swing too far to the collective and to authoritarian mindsets. In some ways, awesome is the word that sums up the current dance to try to find that sweet spot in the human experience. For people listening, they might be wondering how they can inject their own lives with a bit more awesomeness. Like, how can you cultivate more awesomeness? Can you? Like, what are some things people could do just to kind of experiment with this? I find this question to be so hard because it's part of the theory that people are just really different. Some people are really introverted, some are really extroverted, you know, and, you know, you can be awesome in both ways. It's just, it takes different skills and different attunements to the world. Well, how do you do awesome? My favorite thing these days currently, although I have to, there's a big caveat here, but I have a newborn and a toddler. So my awesomeness is very much focused on their, you know, their individualities and try to find, you know, toddler social openings, um, which by the way, you know, he creates as many for me as I do for him. I mean, it's, it's a very, it's a very nice situation, but hard to generalize from, from that one. But in, in my sort of uh, adult life, my favorite thing is, is cooking. So that's sort of the focus of a lot of my attempted awesomeness these days is 
creating really fun meals for friends and inviting them over and having an, having awesome dinner parties. You apply almost a similar approach in your latest book, which I think is about to come out here in Australia, and it's called This Beauty, A Philosophy of Being Alive. I mean, that's an ambitious title, but hey, I do ambitious titles too. <laughs> Why not, hey? Once again, you're looking at a word and, you know, sort of that's ubiquitous in pop lexicon and you do another Socratic deep dive. And this time it sort of started from your fascination with the idea of YOLO, which I think, have I got this right? Like it first bubbled to the surface when Drake used the term. I think he's since regretted and apologised for bringing it, <laughs> bringing yeah. it to popular culture. It led you to a question and the question that I think plagues all of our existence. Could you maybe just tell us what that question is? Yeah. So the book starts out with this question that I've had on my mind for a big part of my life, which no one consented to their existence. So we find ourselves in this world at this time with this body, with among these people and these conditions that are fraught, as I think you emphasize in a lot of your work, there's a lot of problems in, in the world. Uh, and even if there weren't all these problems in the world, we would face just problems in ourselves. I mean, in our own bodies and in our own social lives. And life is hard, in, in, you know, to, to use Kieran Setia's phrase. You know, there's a question about, we didn't choose this life. It's really difficult. Why should we value this thing that we didn't choose? If someone just gives you something that you didn't ask for, and even if it's really valuable, I mean, it, you don't have to value it. There's no imperative there, even if it's the keys to a Ferrari. I mean, it's, you know, Ferraris are cool, but they're also really expensive to keep and kind of uncomfortable to ride in. And, you know, they garner way too much attention. And we're just these fleshy bodies on this troubled planet. I mean, and, and yet, you know, we're told that we should value our lives. You only love once, you know, embrace life. And it's kind of like, but why? Right. And that's, that's the question, you know. Yeah. What's the point? I mean, it's the, you know, the, the existentialists focused on the absurdity of our existence. And then there's been people who have counted or actually created a, a figure, a number as to the chances of us being on this planet. I think it's like we've got a one in 400 trillion chance of having been born. So why do we think we're so bloody special? I mean, or does that, make us special because the chances of us being here were so remote, we must be damn special to have arrived here. So yeah, it's taken different philosophical forms, hasn't it? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's where YOLO comes in because the thought is, there is this deep existential question that we all that we all face and it's, I think, completely unclear how to answer it. That's what I do in my book. I develop an answer, but I think it's a really difficult question. And as a philosopher, you know, I'm not willing to say it's the definitive answer. It's, it's one that I love. I sort of, that's how I emphasize it in the book. But, you know, despite this question being so salient in our lives, we can say things to each other like, you only live once. And it seems to work. It seems to work on us. Like we think, you know it what? It works you're in right. two different ways, right? It can actually create two very different reactions in people. So for me, I know that when I think about it, when I really pull back and, you know, to be honest, Nick, I really loved the premise that you pivot this entire book from. And that is this idea, it's a pulling back that we do at some point to observe the absurdity of our existence. And it can happen at a real crisis moment, or it can happen in nature, or it can happen at a really big point, for instance, when you become a parent, you know, or you're making a big life decision. We realize both the absurdity, but also the precariousness and specialness, the unfathomable luck that we're here. And I think it can actually elicit two responses. For me, it actually makes me feel very light and free. It's like, 
I really don't matter. So now what am I going to do? I've actually got much more permission if I'm less important. And that gets me wanting to take risks and try something that I would not normally do because I might die tomorrow. Other people though, and in many ways, their approach is probably makes a bit more evolutionary sense. A lot of people go, oh, holy shit. I only get one allotted 85 years on this planet. I'm going to grip harder. I'm going to become more conservative in my thinking and my behavior because I don't want to die. I don't want to waste this opportunity. It's kind of the, there's two approaches, isn't there? And I'm sure since you've um, been investigating this, you've, you've come across both people. So what is philosophically at the heart of what YOLO is trying to touch on? Yeah, no, just to affirm your thought there, I mean, the preservationist is sort of the foil in my book. You know, they're, they're the person who has that second reaction that you talk about. And it's like, but how can we justify YOLO in, in the face of the preservationist's response, which is to say, I only have one. I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to do anything. I'm going to stay inside. I'm going to be risk averse. And the thought is that YOLO gets us to think about life in, in, the, in two very different ways. One is as very volatile and destructible and something you can lose in an instant. That's the life of our bodies, of our kind of fleshy, vulnerable bodies. But the other is, you might call it sort of the life of the spirit, you know, this, this, this idea that as people who are alive under these strange circumstances, we can tap into the value of being alive in a lot of different ways beyond just this idea that it should be preserved. I do think there's something to being the value of preserving life. I think that's, you know, there's something lovely about that. Our bodies are precious and beautiful and, and special and preservationists, I think, get something right. But there's so much more that we can do to stay in touch with the value of being alive. YOLO and You Only Live Once kind of tries to, the, the, the way we use those phrases is to get each other to tap into that bigger thing, the beauty that we feel when we are free in your sense, when we are open and adventurous and maybe even, you know, more willing to take risks with ourselves, with, you know, with each other, um, stuff like that. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. It points us to that more spiritual, expansive take on our existence as opposed to just our material, bulky form. And so would you say that those who discover the, the essence of YOLO and really try to embrace it, they're actually aching or leaning towards more of a spiritual vibe to their existence? 
Yeah, I wonder. I mean, I think that can definitely be part of it. I wouldn't say everyone is like that because I think that, I don't know, there's a lot of people who embrace the sort of you only live once spirit. I don't think they're so much aching as as maybe just really into thrills and really into, you know, that kind of freedom that you talked about. You know, they just need to tap into that a lot. When I think of teenage boys or 20-year-old boys like bros who get out there, there can be sometimes a bit of a nihilistic sense, right? Let's go and get absolutely shit-faced and do something dumb. Let's test the edges of our physicality. So in some ways there's a nihilism, which I think, you know, that, that's certainly an undercurrent to contemporary existence, particularly for young men who are feeling the pointlessness and the absurdity in a very particular way. And I think, you know, I... I I think YOLO has become a word really for that generation in some ways because they're trying to really test some of those masculine boundaries, which in the absence of leadership, you know. Um, so I think it's an interesting exploration there. That is fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's something I wanted to go into in this book that I, I didn't quite find a way in as much as I wanted to. Well, let me steer you back to where you did take the book, because it goes in a direction from there. You explore this need to understand why we're here and you pose the question. And it strikes me that you went off in a number of different tangents to try to kind of answer it, but you arrive at a singular word, don't you, in the end? It's on the cover of your book. (laughs) Yeah, beauty. So what do you mean by beauty then? Like, is it the loving of it? Is it like being in it? Is it studying beauty or is it something more than that? Yeah. So the thought is that beauty is, well, I use beauty interchangeably with a kind of more academic term, aesthetic value. Beauty, I think, is sort of the more literary version of of the same concept. It just sounds nicer. It's more lovely. It's lovelier. The thought is that the practice of loving beauty or aesthetic value is at its core a practice of being committed to sharing, sort of discovering, creating, and sharing with each other our best answers to the question that I pose at the beginning of the book. You know, why should we value this life that we didn't choose and that is difficult and, and challenging and troubling? If you're attuned to beauty, if you're a lover of beauty, the answer can just be listen to this beautiful band or look at the blueness of the ocean or uh, fall in love with this painter I'm not saying that that's going to definitively answer the question for the rest of your life, but as long as you're tapped into this practice of creating, discovering, and sharing these kinds of answers, I think that you'll have a reliable source of almost comfort, or at the very least, the question won't be on your mind so much. The notion of congruence springs to mind here. I think that the question that you ask, and I actually refer to this in my book, this one, Wild and Precious Life, and it comes from the wonderful poet David White. He says, there's always more beautiful questions. The question that you set out to answer, which, you know, what should I value or why should I value this life that I simply find myself in, requires or demands or necessitate a beautiful answer. So if you are in beauty and you're seeking out beauty, then it creates a congruence, doesn't it, between the question that you're asking and then what you're seeing in the world. And you'd probably be aware of this. There's a psychological setup in our brains where when we see congruence like this, it creates a real sense of satisfaction and sense of belonging and it dampens the part of the brain that controls anxiety. That's the sense that I got from reading about your thesis of beauty. It all makes sense, right? 
things are beautiful. But one other thing that I think that I pick up on is, and it's very similar to your thesis on on the word awesome, is that beauty comes into being as an outward energy. It's not just about like going and looking at a beautiful sunset and going, isn't this wonderful? It's really about contributing. And it's another social opening in many ways, isn't it? Because there's a giving forth element to it all. And in fact, the word play, I think you use, you quote Frederick Schiller, that plays the secret to cultivating beauty. And I absolutely love this because I'm a big proponent of play. And that brings in the awesome stuff, right? Play returns you to the volitional openness that is everyone's existential origin. Do you want to talk about that a bit for a bit? You know, do you want to rant on that? Yeah. A bit? yeah, yeah, yeah. I like the affinity you're seeing. And if you're, um, if you're a careful reader, you'll notice that I quote Schiller at the very beginning of On Being Awesome. It's one of the opening quotes. Man only plays when he's a human in the full sense of the word and is only human when, when he plays, something like that. The thought there is that part of the practice of loving beauty is cultivating your capacity for what Schiller calls aesthetic freedom, but you might also call volitional openness. And that is very much at the heart, that very concept is at the heart of being awesome. So the idea is that when you're talking about this kind of freedom that you feel when you think about you only live once, I mean, that's, that's the sense of volitional openness in play that I have in mind. It goes back to on being awesome when I talk about this idea that so much of our lives are lived kind of hemmed in by habit and by social structure. We, we tend to inhabit these social roles fairly unreflectively. We've memorized the script, but as a result, we aren't being volitionally open. We're being free in the sense of being autonomous. We're giving the law to ourselves, autonomous. We're controlling our lives in these reflective and conscious ways. If you only live that way, the thought is you're missing out on something that's deeply human and deeply important. And that's playfulness or volitional openness. Part of the practice of loving beauty is staying attuned to your ability to tap into that kind of freedom and that kind of volitional openness. And I think that that's almost the symbol of this, you know, I, I say at the beginning of the book, it's, it's as if we're abduct, abducted from nowhere. You know, it's, it's kind of this, it's as if we're trying to tap back into this place that we came from, which was just this nothingness. Shed yourself of the forms and structures and try to sort of get back to this place where you're just this person on this planet, this weird, strange existence that we don't really understand. And from that place, you can just play and, and be open to beauty. If you don't mind, I might even share just a moment I write about um, and I've shared before and it's quite exposing. It's actually in my book about my anxious journey. I was 34 and I was in a very bad way. I was very unwell and I'd reached a point, you know, the cul-de-sac of my existence and you would call it my suicidal moment and I was prepared to, you know, exit this mortal coil. Um, I'm sorry to hear that, yeah. Oh, thank you. No, I'm, I talk about it openly and it sounds like I'm being very blunt, but um, I think it's something that most humans can connect with at some level. They might not have gone to that right to the end of the cul-de-sac, but they know the sense of the absurdity, the emptiness, what's the pointness of it all. There was this one, wonderfully and life-savingly, there was this sort of opening that I had where I went, wow, there is nothing left to my existence. I'm literally suspended in an abyss and nothing to hold on to, no further avenues for me to explore to get myself out of this, this mess. And in that moment, I felt the freedom, the lightness, the sense that, well, I could either exit or there's another option left and it's an incredible option and that is to do life on my own terms with just the clothes on my back and no expectations and let's 
play and see what happens. I think there's a number of different people who've had that experience. I know Eckhart Tolle had that moment where of just absolute nothingness and from there he was able to venture forth with this incredible freedom. I certainly haven't met, you know, or arrived at his level of oneness and connection. I keep <laughs> reverting back, you know, to the norms, you know, <laughs> um, which which yeah. then demands that I've got to keep playing, you know. I've got to keep playing yeah. with awesomeness to be able to subvert that stuckness again. But I feel that the playfulness is something that we don't talk about enough and I really love that that is really the antidote, isn't it, to to despair, is to play in the absurdity of it all. I think so. You know, I think I think having a healthy sense of playfulness and its connection to aesthetic value, you know, knowing that the source of it is beauty or at least a great source of it is and the things that we create for each other too play over and play with, whether that's beautiful concert or an incredible art show or just, you know, clothes that make you go, whoa, you know, like those are beautiful. Or, you know, nature, you know, I think nature is a great source of this, the way that we create hiking trails for each other to sort of walk around and see the see the natural world in a kind of safe way and and and, and emphasize the beauty of 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 the natural world. Yeah, and the, the common thread to all of those things is that they're expressions, they're generous expressions. Nature and beautiful things in nature are, are generous expressions. It takes a lot of energy to produce a flower, right? And it's a generosity. And I think art is another one of those things. Art make no, makes no sense other than it's a generous outpouring of mutual invitation like come on guys let's let's do the dance yeah I know you're a philosopher Nick and so you don't like venturing too far into the self-help or you know um 12 things you can do kind of list (laughs) oh right Mm -hmm. I am going to ask you about how we can cultivate once again this aesthetic freedom and what are some tangibles and I will draw your attention to the fact that you do say in the book a few little things to this effect you say perhaps there is something you can keep in mind something you can occasionally say to yourself to your friends to willing strangers to keep aesthetic life going strong. So I'm just going to give you a little bit of a prompt there. What are some things we can do to ensure that we keep that aesthetic life going, the play and the dance front and centre? You can keep in mind this phrase from Schiller, uh, which is give freedom through freedom. It's another way of sort of emphasising the but the positive side of all of these phrases that I investigate in the book, like you only live once or live in the moment or treat yourself or, you know, each chapter kind of focuses on a a different handful of these. I, throughout the book, criticize them and kind of pick them apart. And so by the end, I'm kind of like, well, can we build, build it up again? Was there something that we can say to each other or keep in mind? And it's this idea that you can try to keep your capacity for play and volitional openness and individuality to try to keep that in mind. And well, how do you do that? Well, I mean, I think there's a lot of different ways. I mean, and, and different people in different parts of their lives will, will find different ways to, to it. But, you know, for me right now, it's not being checked out when it comes to playing with my toddler and thinking of wonderful ways that we can play together and that he can learn and grow. And so we make pancakes on the weekend or we build castles or we, he's got some of my genes. I used to be a professional skater and he's at, at even at, well, he's two now, but even at 18 months, he was just like amazing on his scooter. <laughs> it's really fun to watch. And so I bought him a ramp and he's learning that and that kind of, you know, I guess the parent version of, of it um, is, is what I'm engaged in a lot, in a lot these days. But 
for for different people, it's gonna they're, they're gonna have their own. You know, whether it's making sure that you're going to concerts or you know supporting artists or cultivating your own artistic life, learning new recipes or inventing recipes or one of the things I emphasize in in the theory of beauty that I develop in the book is that imitation is really a central part of this practice of staying in touch with beauty. So we see this all the time. I mean, if you just nod your head to the beat, you're imitating the beat with your head. But it, you know, if you see someone walking down the street in a beautiful dress, you think, I have to wear that dress or I want that. And I think that one of the things that people can do is be intentional about about those moments of imitation, those moments where you're like, whoa, that, like, that's the thing I want. Whether it's like, you know, you tasted a beautiful dish at a restaurant and you want to try to make it at home for your friends or, or you see that person wearing an outfit walking down the street and want to recreate that at home. I think it's a nice way to just kind of, as a baseline, you know, you're kind of tuned into aesthetic value, noticing those moments of, of inspiration. I think Schiller also says this, let there be beauty. And he almost says it as an imperative, right? Like as a, a moral imperative, let there be beauty as a way of choosing, you know, each twist and turn in your life. Yeah. yeah. I, think that's, I think that's a beautiful call to action. Yeah, let there be beauty. Actually, could you repeat that quote from Sheila that you mentioned earlier about what was it? Cultivate your own freedom to encourage it in others. I, I'm paraphrasing. What is it again? Yeah, give give freedom through freedom. Freiheit zu geben durch Freiheit. So it's, I like it because with the other ones, you know, let, let beauty exist or let humanity exist. Those, those are kind of like lettings, like let's let something, you know, allow this thing to happen. Whereas Give freedom through freedom is a, is is a, is an offering, right? To give give this that is give freedom to other people through your own aesthetic freedom. Because his thought is, when you're tapped into beauty, when you're when you find this ways of playing and response to beauty, you are thereby embodying your full humanity. He thinks that you're you're being your best self, as it were, when you're when you're able to do this. And the way I read Schiller is that when you're being your best self, as it were. Other people can see that in you and they see that as beauty. If they see you as beautiful, then, well, they're tapped into beauty by seeing your beauty. So thereby they're free, they're playing as well. Um, so just by, just by being your beautiful self, you can, you can put that freedom into the world and offer it to other people. So the dance moves forward and humanity mm -hmm. expands in better directions. Exactly. Yeah, no, I get it. There's a question that I do ask you know, generally the philosophers, um, if they're on my podcast at the end of the podcast. <laughs> and it comes from an Eric from Sentiment where he asked the question, what is left if we were to lose it all? So in the final wash up, what matters essentially is what he's asking. And I pick up from your books and your inquiry um, that there's, you know, this, this kind of thread that what makes life worth living, what we value is this mutual egging on of each other, you know, of sort of prompting each other through our own best behaviour and drawing out the expansiveness, the potential expansiveness in others. Would that be what you would say counts the most in the final wash-up? That's where I'm at right now. Yeah. And I just had a little test of my own to see whether I really do believe this. I had a cancer scare and I'm two weeks out of a surgery that removed a plum-sized growth in my throat. Happily, uh, it wasn't cancer. It wasn't lymphoma. So and I, I just learned that uh, not too long ago after the pathology report was in last week. So um, <clears throat> someone asked me, you know, gosh, you you know, you have a, a newborn and a two-year-old and 
you were just like kind of faced with this potentially very life-threatening thing. Did anything, you know, change about the way, the way you think about life? And, and I, my honest response was, you know what? I love my life and I want to keep, I want to keep living the life that I've, that I'm living right now. I just really, I just love what I'm doing. I love the writing and the teaching and the emphasis on, in my own life, you know, on the things that I, you know, I do practice what I preach. And, and so I think I can really honestly at this moment say that, uh, that that is, that is what I, that is what I currently feel the most connected to. And, and I feel like it's the most meaningful thing that when all is said and done, like this is such an important thing to emphasize in life. And that I feel like people are really missing out if they aren't tapped into these kinds of, you know, into beauty. Yeah. And they're not um, expressing it and therefore inviting people into the dance. Because, Nick, you only live once, right? <laughs> exactly. Well, yeah. So so it seems. Poor Drake. He's really he really wants yeah. to live that comment down. I won't say poor Drake. I'm not feeling any pity for Drake right now. But <laughs> no, hey, listen, yeah. Nick, that was a really fun conversation. And I've got to say for me, so much of what is important for me in my cultivation of beauty is these kinds of conversations. So thanks for 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 dancing with me. Yeah, totally. Yeah, we're doing it. Yeah. <laughs> that was my pleasure. Thanks for having me. You might remember at the top of this interview, Nick and I distinguished two different responses to the precariousness or the the awareness of our precariousness on this planet and also the sheer flukiness of our existence, that we had a one in 400 trillion chance of even being born and yet here we are. So YOLO, you know, the you only live once mantra, it either makes you want to grip harder, become even more fearful and live even more narrowly because you've only got these allotted 85 years on the planet, or it gets you in touch with that freedom that I mentioned, that sense that if none of it matters, if it's all pointless, then we can choose not to be caught up, to not get rigid. So let's play, let's express, let's focus on beauty and let's make it infectious. Let's lift into life together. Let there be beauty. I think this episode should probably exist as something of an invitation to be more awesome in our own lives, which is to say, be the person, to quote Fred Schiller, who gives freedom through freedom. I love that quote. Now, I know Nick was a bit reluctant to give tips on exactly how to do this. I think it's a philosopher thing, but I'm happy to. Me, I think it's about reaching out to the barista and, you know, break out of the drudgery, the rut of going through the motions of ordering and paying, you know, perhaps asking what they're reading at the moment or what podcast they're listening to. It might be asking real probing questions at parties or answering the banal, how are you question with something challenging like the deadly truth. So, you know, it might go, how are you? And you might say, well, I have a lower backache, which I get when I feel lonely or frustrated in a conversation or at a party. Do you ever feel this? It's about highlighting the extraordinary in the ordinary, or maybe turning the ordinary into something extraordinary. Philosophy for me mostly poses more questions than it gives answers. It invites a a pivot in our thinking. So I'm going to leave it to you to perhaps continue this conversation that, that Nick and I had here out there in your real lives. Keep it awesome, find the beauty as always, and and share this episode around if you want loved ones in your life to be more engaged in similar conversations. I'll see you next episode. 
elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.